Welcome to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. Our mission is to connect the past and the present NICU mom by sharing our stories and celebrating what our babies have overcome. So whether your NICU journey was 50 years ago or whether you find yourself sitting in the NICU today, we hope that this podcast reminds you you are not alone. Welcome to the sisterhood. Welcome to our very first episode. Episode one. Episode one. Um, our last episode was basically just an intro of Martha and I kind of sharing um, why we created Dear Nikki Mama, the purpose of it. And so we're really excited just to dive in. And uh, this podcast, the beauty of it is that we get to showcase a lot of stories. It's a mm-hmm. really great storytelling platform. And so... You guys are going to get to hear from some incredible moms, um, but today you get the incredible honor of hearing from our one and only Martha. (laughs) She is going to be our first episode, our first interview, and um, her heart is gold. And we're actually going to do two episodes with Martha because Martha has two beautiful babies. And so um, the first episode will honor her son, JP, and then our second episode will honor her daughter, JJ. So this first episode... um, we get to hear the story in the life of JP, and this episode is unique And um, in that, Martha, you lost your son, and so would you just preface your story just a little bit for any NICU moms listening to this, for any pregnant moms, for any mm-hmm. um, moms who haven't lost babies, like maybe just preface how you hope they listen to it and how they process through it, because it's important to share your story and to yeah. hear it, but would you mind just sharing a little bit? Yes. Before? So the story that I'm going to tell obviously involves um, infant loss. And at some, at some points, I'm going to go into details about the medical issues and how things felt and, and smelled and, and looked. If you know that this is going to be uh, upsetting and discomforting to a level that isn't going to be helpful for you. Maybe set aside time when you know that you're safe and protected, where you have um, space to maybe cry or take it in and process it. It's not something you'll want to listen to um, right before bed or before you have to do something emotionally draining. Um, Maybe it's not something you want to listen to while you're in the NICU with your baby. To moms who are pregnant or in the NICU right now, This is not something that I want to worry you or to become an obsessive thought for you. We know that moms in the NICU or pregnant moms who struggle with anxiety tend to fixate on things, Mm -hmm. medical issues, articles that they read, because it's their brain trying to sort and control the situation that Mm -hmm. um, is completely out of their hands. So that being said... We know that most preemie babies, most baby in the NICUs do so, so well. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing for you to do is to focus on your baby, your medical providers, and what they're saying. Mm -hmm. So if you know that you're someone who is triggered by these things, um, I'm going to raise my hand and you can't see it, but sometimes I did that too. I was Googling crazy things when I shouldn't have been Googling it and it wasn't helpful. (laughs) So really take a, a beat to consider whether or not this is the right time. Because the internet's great. It'll be here forever. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think this episode is valuable for a lot of reasons. But I think um, Martha is really allowing us to um, 
to understand infant loss from her perspective and and to really um, give us a front row seat of what that's like. And that's really sacred and special. And so I think this episode is valuable to listen to when you're ready, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so if you can hit stop and listen to the next episode or, Mm -hmm. you know, and come back to it or whatever you feel is ready. Um, We just wanted to preface this because we don't want it to be a trigger for you. Mm -hmm. Um, This podcast is meant to be only helpful and healing. So Mm -hmm. if that's not that right now, then you can come back to it and that's okay. (laughs) So um, my name is Martha. I'm originally from Minnesota, but I have lived with my husband all over the country and we had our first child, our son, James Pierre, we called him JP, uh, in Los Angeles. Um, so I, I always wanted to be a mother. Mm-hmm. Like I, it's just something I wanted so badly. And when I was at school, I went to NYU for hashtag musical theater, which I <laughs> hashtag do not use. <laughs> Thanks, student loans. Um, everyone there would call me Mommy Martha I, they, um, because that was just – it was just something that I really wanted for my identity. I really loved my life growing up and having a million siblings and mm-hmm. um, seeing my mother be so sac- self-sacrificial and loving. So um, once, you know, I – I nabbed my husband, Zach, and we got married, and it felt like the time was right. We were I was so excited to, mm-hmm. to get pregnant, um, but I soon found out that uh, it was going to be challenging for me to have a baby to get pregnant, um, so I'm sure people in the TTC, the trying to conceive community, know um, things like Clomid and Femera. Those are... Um, monthly uh, medications that you take to try and force your body to ovulate because mine was not doing that because I have PCOS. Um, and did you know you had PCOS before you guys started trying or was that something you it, discovered? It was something I discovered when we were, we were starting. Um, and I also found out during that time that my sister had PCOS. My sister had difficulty conceiving. And uh, she did a couple courses of Femera, um, and she did these really fun shots that her husband had to do in her, like, Mm -hmm. navel. (laughs) Um, And they were able to conceive that way. Um, But PCOS has a couple of really strong hallmarks. So irregular painful periods is a really common one. But also fair hair and dark hair growth. That's so weird. (laughs) Um, But it's just something that all my sisters have. And... um, I just suspected that I was a candidate for that. So when I went in and they did some tests, it was pretty clear. Um, I also had amniorrhea, so I didn't have a period for like a year and a half um, off of birth control. So, um, you know, they did a couple different ultrasounds at the beginning. Um, At one point, someone had thrown around the word septum, and I didn't really know what that was yet. Um, And it didn't come up until years later after we had JP. Um, I had one miscarriage during the time when we were doing infertility, um, which was heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just like a whole level of emptiness that I didn't feel prepared for at all. It's so frustrating to have a miscarriage and then have to wait Mm -hmm. because you have to wait several months so that your body can properly heal, Mm -hmm. um, so that you can have a successful conception, um, just the waiting was was horrible. Mm-hmm. And that, that 
that whole process of pumping my body with hormones on and off and the waiting and all of that was really when my anxiety and depression and PTSD were little seedlings just being planted in my heart um, and brain. Um, I did end up getting pregnant um, with JP on my last possible round of Clomid, mm-hmm. um, which was amazing. Um, I was so happy. I was obviously so afraid during the first 12 weeks mm-hmm. because I, I had a couple episodes of bleeding because I had a subchoronic hemorrhage. Um, they're so fun, mm-hmm. Ashley. You remember those? So fun. <laughs> so basically, it's you experience periodic bleeding. Mm-hmm. And some women have subchoronic hemorrhages and experience consistent bleeding their entire pregnancy mm-hmm. and deliver perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. At least that's what Google told me. Yeah, that's what my doctor <laughs> told me. Yeah, well. right. And so um, what I didn't know was that if you have consistent uh, subcranic hemorrhage, it's also puts you at higher risk for delivering prematurely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had several bleeds. I went to the ER a couple times. And how um, early did you start bleeding? Oh, God, like nine weeks. Okay. Nine weeks. And so pretty much like every two weeks I was going into the um, – the uh, emergency room or urgent care or something like that. Um, hashtag health bills. <laughs> um, and when I got to 12 weeks, I thought, oh, this is it. Like, this is great. I'm, you know, I've made it. Nothing bad can happen now. Mm-hmm. And my dad's a doctor. He's been a family med doctor for like 40 years. And I remember asking him, like, can I breathe now? Is it going to be okay? And he said, yeah, it's, it's going to be okay. Your baby's mm-hmm. going to be just fine. Mm-hmm. Um. I, the bleeding was a concern for my OB. So she kind of restricted my travel. Um, It was like November around Thanksgiving. And she said, you know, past 20 weeks, let's just not travel anywhere because you want to be within 30 minutes of a level three NICU Hmm. Um, just in case. And so I didn't go plan any trips home from California to Minnesota for Thanksgiving or for Christmas um we planned for my parents to come visit me um but little did I know uh one night I came home from work and I was in grad school at the time so I was doing that homework online and I was um dancing around our apartment to the song the rubber band man I don't know if you know it I do not I will force Ashley to listen to it after this but it's this silly funk song anyway I was listening to that and I just felt weird all of a sudden. Like I just felt like my baby was low. Mm. Like it was very odd. Um, and then I went to the bathroom and it was different than the subcranial hemorrhage bleeding, bleeding, which is was like normally dark for me because it yeah. takes time to like travel from the uterus. Um, but this was bright red. And so I went into the ER and at this point I was, goodness, 23 and 6. So I was 23 weeks pregnant in 6 days. Um, so I went into the hospital, and um, if any of you ladies know, after 20 weeks, you don't go to the emergency room. You go to the labor and delivery um, because at that point, they would be able to treat you um, for antepartum, I suppose, because potentially they could try and get you to a viable age of delivery. Um, it seemed fine overnight. The ultrasound tech came in and was like, yeah, you're going to have to stay overnight probably. And you look like you're a little short, but I think it's fine. Um, and so I sent my husband home because uh, he had work the next day. And I thought, it's not a big deal. I'll just stay here overnight and he'll come pick me up in the morning. And I was woken up at 6 a.m. Um, uh, 
t- whole team of doctors and my perinatologist and um, nurses rushed into the room and said, Martha, you can't sit up anymore. You're not leaving. You are, um, I have to check you right now because it appears that you're dilated and you have bulging membranes, which is the grossest description. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hate just t- saying all this stuff to you because it sounds so dumb. No. First of all, the term incompetent cervix. Can we talk about that? <laughs> anyway, bulging membranes. Bulging. Bulging membranes. So it was it was very scary. Mm-hmm. And I started hyperventilating. And, and, and you're alone. And I'm alone. Yeah. Terrifying. And um, I was hyperventilating. And and I mean, not like legitimately having mm-hmm. a panic attack. And she grabbed me by the shoulder and she said, you can't have a panic attack right now. Because if you do, you might go on to, you might deliver this baby. And you need to calm your body as much as possible. Mm. So um, <laughs> in retrospect, I don't know. I loved her a lot. But was it helpful to say don't have a panic attack? Someone having a panic attack? So I just kind of had to get my poop in a group. And um, I didn't, I couldn't get to my cell phone. Uh, because First of all, it was dead because I'd been there overnight and I didn't have a charger. Um, so I had to get the landline for my room. And I called Zach and told him to get over there here as soon as possible. Um, I don't think he really understood that it was dangerous, right? Right. I called my dad, again, who's a doctor, and he, his, I could just tell by the way he sounded that he couldn't give me any reassurance. Mm -hmm. Like, it was just going to, it was going to be hard. Mm -hmm. So, basically, um, I, if you are, if you are shortened enough your cervix um, to a certain point, you can have a stitch put in to keep your cervix closed. But I was already dilated to like a one millimeter. Um, so they can't put it in at that point. Uh, all they can do is try and keep the baby in as long as possible. So I had a course of mag sulfate, which we all know is super fun. <laughs> I felt like, I don't know, one of those, you know, old Warner Brothers cartoons. You just like feel like steam's coming out of your ears. It makes you so crazy. It basically, it's a neural protectant for the baby if they were to come early. Um, but it also... Call, like is and relaxes every muscle in your body um so that you it stops contractions you can't be on it for very long periods of time you know for me I was just like I'll just stay on it for like <laughs> five weeks but that's just not a possibility because it's you know you can get a little blood pressure with it and all sorts of stuff I don't know musical theater you guys but um I also was on some other medications to stop contractions, which you can't be on for more than a couple days at a time. I went on antibiotics, which you can't be on for more than a week or so. Um, So basically, there's all these interventions that they can do, but there's not one, like, medication that they can give you to stay pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I stayed on my back for until I was 25 and zero, 25 weeks. Um, I could not sit up. I had to use a bedpan. Sorry, TMI. No. <laughs> and when you're pregnant, you got to use the bathroom a lot, y'all. <laughs> and also, I was on an IV drip, so I didn't. I wasn't dehydrated, so it was horrible. Like I, it was horrible. Yeah. Um, I had to eat horizontally. I think I I lost pretty much every pound of weight that I had gained during pregnancy. Um. 
there were a couple times when I stopped the medication for in those in-between days when I couldn't be on the anti-contraction medications mm-hmm. that I would get them. And it was scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were able to stop it every, every couple times, you know, but, um, the night of the, when I turned 25 weeks, they just couldn't. Um, and unfortunately my husband wasn't there that night because he wouldn't sleep there every night. You know, I didn't, I needed yeah. him to get yeah. sleep. Um, so he wasn't there and I was feeling contractions the entire night. Um, it was horrible. And I remember listening to a This American Life podcast about Frank Sinatra <laughs> and like being like, I'm not having contractions, la, 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 trying to pretend like it wasn't happening. And um, they were not registering on the TOCO because if you know anything about muscles and the uterus, basically it stretches out as it gets bigger. Um when you are not that pregnant, it's difficult to pick it up because the muscle wall is not stretched out. It's thicker and the baby can be in weirder positions. So it's harder to pick up on those contractions and they were not really believing me that I was having them. Um, and basically by the time I was able to convey that properly and by the time my doctor was able to get in, it would we had to do an emergency C-section. Um, they were going to try and have me push, but um, it just was going to be too dangerous. Um, so Zach got there and, I don't, you know, you, you, just, you just pray. And, um, you know, he just stood behind me as I sat up for the first time in like two weeks and I saw the floor and that was to get my epidural put in, my, my spinal block put in, which took them a couple times. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, anesthesiologist. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, I went in, um, at that point I did not know that the reason I was going into labor was because I had a severe, um, infection. Um, I was, when you're dilated like that for so long, you become exposed to just like the regular bacteria that exists in your body. So I became infected with E. coli and my, um, my son JP got it too through the umbilical cord. Um, That stuff spreads really fast. I mean, I basically developed an infection within an hour because I had no issues when they were reeling me in. But during the delivery, I I mean, I thought this was normal, but I was going in and out of consciousness because my fever was so high. What Um, was your fever? Did they tell you Oh, it was like 105, something like that. It was crazy. (laughs) And, but they didn't take it until after, right? So um, also it took a long time. You know, my second C-section was like, wham, bam, thank you, man. I was like, y'all deserve, you just won like the Grand Prix. But the first, the first one took like an hour. um, And um, when he came out, um, when JP was born, he had already descended in the birth canal a little bit. Um, so he had kind of a minor, he had like this thing on his head, like a scratch basically. And Zach had to just go with him. Um, so he had to just get up and leave me and I was just alone and I felt horrible and nauseous. You know, the drugs make you mm-hmm. so feel so sick. I feel, I'm like feeling it right now, just describing mm-hmm. it and you lurch, but because I hadn't eaten anything, mm-hmm. I like just nothing was, I was just dry heaving as they're like, you know putting my internal organs back inside me. Um, But also that's when they kind of saw that there was infection because they could just tell by what they were seeing. Um, I went to post-surgery, post-op, 
and I was there for I think like four hours because and Zach wasn't with me I was alone because I they couldn't get me stable I was uh my temp was really really high my heart rate was super super high it was like it was like I was running a marathon it was like 180 so they accidentally gave me meg sulfate when I was in post-op which makes your body warmer so that didn't help my fever um and it took them a while to figure out that um that it wasn't just a bad infection that I was septic so the infection was in my bloodstream once they figured it out it's I started to balance and and even out um the entire time there was a woman in the exact spot right next to me. You know, in post-op, there's, like, curtains that separate you. And she was with her baby, and she um, was breastfeeding the baby for the mm-hmm. first time. And it was, like, the it was horrible. Because I thought, I legitimately thought I was going to die. And, you know, it's a very weird thing to think that you're going to die, um, so, you know, you have to, like, make peace with God and stuff. And um, I did that. And I just had to th- – I felt really scared. And I just – I thought, I'm, I'm going to die and my husband's not going to be here. And he's going to have to take care of our son by himself. I mean, that's a horrible thing to have gone through. Mm-hmm. And, y'all, this is just part one. <laughs> so, um, you know – and you hadn't even really had a chance to, like, meet your son. Oh, no. I didn't meet my son. I hadn't met, you know, it would be hours, you know, before I would meet him. This, I, you know, in my head I was like, is it 9 p.m.? And they're like, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, but it's um, – because I, I was – they were prepping me in the morning for delivery. And um, I don't think I met him until 2 a.m. the following evening. So it took time for me to be stable. So once I was, a- they were able to get me out and bring me to postpartum. They brought me to the postpartum wing. So those are smaller rooms, you know, lots of babies crying. There's fewer nurses because it's more like postpartum care, you know, um, lactation support, that type of thing. Um, there's not a lot of support for people who ha- have had severe um infections and stuff like that so I had visits by the perinatologist the um you know my OB uh infectious disease doctor all this type of thing all these doctors were coming into the room to talk to me and it wasn't it was it was awful because there were women walking up and down the halls with their babies all day long mm-hmm. so I I stayed there um until uh until the next day um when I first got to see him I was still not stable and basically I mean this is one of the my the deepest sadnesses I have was that I was so unwell um I shouldn't I should have just been in a hospital bed right but I was going you know up two floors down these long hallways every time to just go and see my son and so that, the journey in itself was really taxing on my body. And NICUs, um, because uh, tiny little babies don't know how to thermoregulate, are very warm. So that's not a great place for someone who is having, like, a consistent high fever, right? Mm-hmm. And chilling all the time. And so the first time I saw him, they wheeled me in, and I was just, everything about it felt wrong. Mm-hmm. And I remember my sister saying, I'm so excited for you to see him because you'll just feel it. 
And I got wheeled in there and I felt nothing but extreme fear Mm -hmm. and emptiness because everything about it was wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, I I like snapped into mother bear mode and I was going to do everything for him I could. But like there was just nothing my body could give. Mm -hmm. So I could only be in there for like five minutes, Mm -hmm. you know. And it, I, you know, we, we didn't even touch that much. Um, the first night I, I just needed to go back to the room and sleep. And then my husband spent the night up here, them up in the NICU with him. Um, in the NICU there, you know, as Ashley and I both know, there's lots of different types of NICUs and pretty much every hospital is super different. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one was one where there was one large communal space. So there was basically two NICU wings, one for older grower feeder babies and one for more severely ill babies and so there was a there was a makeshift pod isolation pod in um this hospital's NICU um and that's where we were and I remember it was like a makeshift pod because like it was really hard to get my wheelchair over and every time I hit the bump I was like oh I'm gonna die um another fun thing about c-sections is uh you don't realize it but the number one pain you experience from c-sections is like the incision it's the gas pain And it sounds so dumb to say. People are like, go take a gas X. And I'm like, first of all, I will find you and murder you. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to murder anyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> liability. Um, but uh, it's very, very painful. And the only way you can really work it out is by walking. Mm-hmm. So when you have, uh, when you're working your way out of a severe infection, you can't really walk around a lot. So mm-hmm. I had gas pain for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And every time I cried and every time I sobbed or hyperventilated, it hurt, right? Because mm-hmm. every time – I'm sure you remember this. Anytime maybe you sneezed or oh. someone made you laugh or something with the incision and you, like, laugh for a second, then you're like, ah, daggers. It hurts so bad. It's, yeah, we could do a whole podcast episode on how – painful c-sections are (laughs) and the gas pain i will vouch yes yeah oh my gosh so many people would tune into an episode about gas pain (laughs) (laughs) the fact that you feel it in your shoulders oh so weird i was like i was like no like it hurts in my shoulders yeah that can't be gas and she's like no it it, is that's what it is i was like what yes (laughs) it's so crazy right yeah who anyway (laughs) so basically i was in a lot of pain um and I would make these little trips to and back from his room. And it was so hard because we'd have to plan it out. Yeah. Because I was on a very intense course of antibiotics. I was on four antibiotics at one time because I'm allergic to one family of antibiotics. And it was the strain of E. coli was very resistant to the antibiotics I was taking. It was insane. So I was very, very sick. And... um and it was difficult. So it would take an hour to prep to get down there. And then I would get down there and I could only stay for like 15 minutes and then I would leave. And I felt really disconnected and I feel I, I felt really selfish. Like I was doing the wrong thing. Like I was not feeling the way I should feel. I was not feeling the connection with my son. And we were up in that postpartum wing. And I was going to the – I was in the restroom. Again, C-section moms know you, like, that's like a whole, you know, show – dog and pony show on its own, mm-hmm. like going to the bathroom for the first mm-hmm. time. So I was in there and I was making light of something and I was just like, you know, I don't know. I was making fun of the mesh underwear or something. And I came out in the room and 
everyone's faces. My mom and my dad, they had flown in, were there, and my husband was there, and they just looked sick. And while I was in the bathroom, some a nurse had rushed down from the NICU to say um, that he wasn't going to make it, and we needed to get up there as soon as possible. Well, so we did. We walked up there, um, and luckily we were able to buy some more time with him but then we had to have these very long conversations with the neonatologist about why he wouldn't survive um why why it wouldn't be worth it to fight for him and that's a very um confusing thing for you to have to take in when you're just a you know when I am just acclimating to myself to the idea that I have a child to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically he couldn't keep his blood pressure up. Um, his brain was – the part of the brain that like moderates blood pressure was just not developed enough to work for him. Um, they – when you're in the NICU, if you have a premature baby in the NICU, one of the first things they do is an ultrasound of the baby's head um, because they can get a brain bleed. Um this is really common. It's probably the, one of the most sig- significant, deadliest things that could happen to babies in the NICU. Um, it can also have long-term effects. I, I know of a lot of NICU moms that have grade one and two um, babies. The most common long-term issue with that is um, CP. Um, so I knew that JP, no matter what, if he survived, was going to have long-term um disabilities and and things that he was going to have to struggle with because he had a grade four brain bleed um i to this day i'm not even sure what determination went into it you know i'm glad my dad was there because he could try he could listen and process the medical information as much as possible but they just told me he wasn't going to make it and that we had to decide when we wanted to take him off life support which is also horrible Mm -hmm. um and you what i mean what do you do what i mean what do you even where do you even begin with that like okay do we give it as much time as possible and then if he declines we do it do we um you know try to do it as fast as possible because we don't want him to suffer um he was in a lot of pain and he was he was on a lot of pain medication which really made him very very um still uh do you wait it out and then he passes in the middle of the night and you're not there um we we decided we were going to have the baptism that day so we uh, my brother-in-law is a pastor and he had a friend from seminary who uh, super randomly was called out to a church um in the town we were living in los angeles area and so um he asked him to come in and so he drove in um from pasadena which doesn't mean anything to the midwest audience but it was a drive okay um and he he was very sweet um he my brother-in-law called him he drove in and he did the baptism for jp um um this was a gosh you know saturday um, because jp was born on a friday so um and i should also mention this was a week before christmas so he (laughs) 
anyway, so he came and did the baptism, and it was really beautiful. Um, my parents were there. Um, Zach's parents were there. His sister was there. Um, and uh, then we planned. We slept on it, and the next day we decided, okay, around 2 p.m., we're going to take him off. So we had all all the family that we could come in and spend some time with him and say goodbye. And then it was just Zach and I. Um, and I had not held him at this point. Um, NICU babies who are preemies, their skin is so fragile that you can just, all you can do is press down lightly mm-hmm. because if you were to rub back and forth, it would tear the skin. It's that, it's paper thin. Um, and he was a micro preemie. He was born one pound, nine ounces. Um, so they did all of the stuff they could possibly do to take him out of his isolate so I could hold him. And again, NICU mamas who have preemies know there's there's a million hookups. Mm-hmm. He had a central line. He had a pick line. He had um, – he was intubated. He had uh, all these cords and sensors and things attached to him. So it takes forever for them to get them out. And then when they lift them up, I give them to you. They're so tiny. So first of all, when you have a baby, you're like, this is the smallest human being ever alive. But he like was almost, you know, he was so little and didn't look like newborn babies you see on diapers, diaper packages and um, commercials and stuff. So it was upsetting and you just try and stay as still as possible. And they put him in my arms, kind of cradled for a while um, and the NICU nurses there were amazing. Um, they had like cameras, so they were taking pictures of us, um, the whole time and I didn't even realize it. Um, and we just held him and we sang to him. Um, and Zach just kind of sat behind me and looked over and, um, it was, it was really surreal. It was one of these things. I have a friend was in seminary who said that there's times in life where like the space between heaven and earth is really thin and um that's the closest thing I can say to describe it you know it was hard a lot of times I just was wanting it to be over because I was in physical pain and just the anticipation of trying to decide when you take your child off life support is exhausting and I don't even think there's a proper word for it, to be honest. Um, So we did, and he survived for like two hours all of life support. His body was not compatible with life at this point, but we had so much time with him, and the nurses helped me. I had a sweet nurse who was – she was supposed to be doing postpartum stuff, but she – came and sat with me and brought me water Mm. and when you have fever you know you get hot and cold and hot and cold so she'd put a blanket on me and then take it off and put a blanket on me take it off and she arranged to have all of my meds brought in with me so I could just stay there as long as I needed to um and so there was there was someone there to take care of me so that I could do this um at a certain point we were sitting there and you know you know, the, every now and then the alarms would go off. And I didn't know what it meant then. Mm. And now I know what it means. Um, and they would just come in and silence it. Uh, every now and then a doctor would come in and check his pulse. And finally there was this lovely neonate. She came in and 
she shook his pulse. Her name was Dr. Brown. And she looked at us and she said, <sighs> she said, JP's in heaven now. I don't think I'll ever forget that. And um, I think that there, just the kindness of so many people there was uh, somehow, and if you're, I don't know if you're spiritual or not, but there was some sort of divine protection surrounding us then because we shouldn't have made it through that, any of that. Um, but there were so many people who, who treated his life as so sacred and precious. Um, and I will, I will be so grateful for that for the rest of my life. We were able to bring him back to a room. They put us in a different room in the antepartum wing. So it was totally empty. It was just like us and a bunch of extra, you know, hospital beds, <laughs> but it was nice. It was quiet and they put something special on our door. So people knew that we were bereaving parents and the awesome NICU nurses, um, called an organization called now i lay me down to sleep who sent out a photographer again like the week before christmas actually at this point it was like four days before christmas and he came at like a 6 p.m on a sunday and he took pictures of jp and all my family was there and well my parents and zach's parents and his sister and they all took turns holding him and we took pictures with everybody and we got him dressed up and then um it was just Zach and I, and we held him, and, you know, I have pictures of this, too, and it was just, we were right by the door, and I was sitting in my wheelchair, um, holding him, and he changed. Um, even though he looked so frail already, he became so much more beat up. Um, his body started to bruise. We, we held him, and Zach and I said goodbye, and... You know, they said, "Do you are you ready to take him for us to take him away?" And I said, "Yeah." And I just remember his little hand was sitting on my finger, and I just was stroking the inside of it, and it was it was ice cold, right? So those are some things that I'm very grateful for. My that my body and my hippocampus um, have taken hold of. Because when you experience a loss like that, infant loss, um, your memory starts to fade immediately because you are in the midst of trauma and pain and all this stuff. And so your cognitive abilities just go down the drain. So I'm really, I'm really grateful that I have those things. So we spent the week leading up to Christmas um, in the hospital, coming out of the hospital. Christmas Eve, we went to... Um, a funeral home to pick out his um, urn and that was like that was the worst Christmas I've ever had <laughs> mm. um, I again I just feel really grateful to have been surrounded by so many amazing people who protected us and lifted us up um, in weirdly some ways the experience of JP feels softer than JJ mm-hmm. because um there was just a holiness around it, right? Mm-hmm. I don't even know what a different word would be for it. Um, there were a lot of things about the fact that it was taking place at Christmas time that were really poignant and special for us. You know, the idea that there's an infant child who comes to people, mm-hmm. uh, a little boy who changed the world, right? 
So that's always been like, so anytime I see a nativity scene, I'm like, oh my God, there's a baby. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I'm just grateful that there has been an aura of, of preciousness around it. It makes it bearable for me. Mm-hmm. So um, JP is um, a memory now. And I feel grateful that the NICU staff there put together a beautiful bereavement box for us. They took an impression of his hand, Mm -hmm. um, which is beautiful. Um, So I can see that every now and then. I have his urn. I have locks of his hair. I have um, all sorts of things. His impressions of his feet and hands, obviously, and, you know, his footprints and pictures of him. And it's all together, and we... Um, the men at my, my home church in Alexandria, Minnesota, make these baptism boxes that are meant for babies who are being dedicated, you know, in the church so that they can carry things with them throughout their lives. And so we got one of those and we just filled it with all of his things, his blankets and everything. And we had a service for him and, um, like the day after Christmas, um, I, you know, I, I don't know if there's a real ending to the story because it's the thing about grief um, um, that I think a lot of people don't think realize, especially because most of us don't experience grief and loss of the people we love until later on in life, right? Mm-hmm. Is Or I hope that people don't experience that, um, is that it doesn't ever go away and it fundamentally changes you as a person. Um which is upsetting and it will hit you at the weirdest times because you smell something. And, um, I really struggled with the idea of what it means to be a grieving mother because anytime I read something or see something on television about a woman who has lost their child, um, the only depiction I see is them going insane. I mean, if you, if you think about what we know, about it you know I every time I always think about Mary Todd Lincoln you know who lost her children and how she was described as as wearing black every day of her life and having crazy visions and being you know and I just I hate that so much because it just diminishes um what grief is it's not something that totally un- it, it yeah it breaks you but it also, for me, is the only thing that proves JP was here. Mm-hmm. So it's also founded in this incredible love that I have for him. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that I know I'll grapple with it for the rest of my life. Um, and I know there's a lot of NICU moms and um, other moms who lose their children young like this. And there is, I just don't want them to feel alone in that. Mm-hmm. And know that their life can be big and beautiful and full still. Mm-hmm. And they can carry that memory. And it can be precious. It doesn't have to be, I don't know, something to get over or to lose. Right. I like how you said that it's not something to just get over. Right. You know, like their life continues beyond mm-hmm. that moment. You right. Know? And um, part of the reason we wanted to do two episodes for you is because we want to honor JP. And we want to mm-hmm. honor your story. And like you said if there's any NICU mom that um, has lost a baby in the NICU or didn't get to come home with their baby, mm-hmm. um, like, you aren't alone. And mm-hmm. so 
Um, I feel like we could talk for an hour just about the healing process you've been on and, you know, that. Mm-hmm. But if there's and by a- healing process, you mean going to Target every day. Because <laughs> that's my only healing process. <laughs> no, if you follow Martha on social media, she's like an awesome advocate for mother's mental health. And she shares lots of great things. But um, if there's a NICU mom listening that has lost a baby or... Um, Maybe there's someone listening who has a friend who's lost a baby in the NICU or whatever. Like what piece of it, like what piece of advice or encouragement, maybe encouragement's more of the word, Mm -hmm. would you offer um, to that mom? This is what I'd say to, um, to, to family and friends. Uh, A lot of people like to say things um, to bring words of comfort because that's what our culture has uh, encouraged us to do. But it's really unhelpful. I've heard some most times. I've heard the most horrible things about the uh, death of my child. A lot of times people share little um, phrases with you that are not helpful. Like, this is God's plan. Mm. Um, or, don't worry, it's all God's, God's plan. Or, you, you can always have another, right? Mm. Um uh, those things really sting. Someone told me that, that because people lose children, that's how they know God doesn't exist, right? So people just say things, and I think it's to fill empty space. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is the most helpful thing is to just sit with people. And I think that a lot – there are other religions other than Christianity that probably do this better, this grieving, this lamenting part of it. Um but like you know, like Judaism, you know the the practice of sitting shiva, right? Just sitting in grief um, with someone is uncomfortable because they're in pain and you can do nothing about it. But that's the point, right? Right? It's just not being alone. Uh, so that's what I I would suggest to family and friends. Keep keep your thoughts maybe to yourself. Mm-hmm. Do practical things to help them without them asking. We've talked about this. Mm-hmm. Go to their house and clean it. Bring them groceries. Um, get their car washed. Give them throw them gift cards. Don't throw them at them. Yeah, but bring them <laughs> bring them gift cards uh, for gas. Stuff like that. Practical things because day to day life is really really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we washed dishes for like a full month afterwards because we just couldn't. You're just relearning how to live. Mm-hmm. Um, for moms who are going through this right now, if you're – I know there's a lot of mothers um, that actually know that they're going to have to say goodbye to their children the entire pregnancy. Um, I know moms like that uh, who, who know that their children are not going to make it when they're born. Uh, and all I can say is, is prepare the way that feels best for you. Um, but but do prepare um, so that you can have have the memories and the things to take with you forward. So an example, I know women who book birth photographers. I know women who have um, planned out the funerals and things like that ahead of time so that they don't have to do it later on. It sounds horrible, but it's it's what you do to take care of yourself so that you know when you are, have nothing left, you have something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I was so grateful to the NICU nurses for doing a lot of that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, too, for women who are going through something like where they're going to have to make a decision, um, 
take time to listen and understand what are your rights um what are you know don't, don't feel pushed into decisions really really feel empowered to ask difficult questions of the doctors mm-hmm. um because I think it's easy for them to forget that the passing of a life is incredibly significant and it's going to be the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life right mm-hmm. so ask questions um not to fight a medical inevitability, but more to know how you can create the space you need to grieve. Mm-hmm. Can I wait another day so I can get a family member here? Mm-hmm. Um, now, the NICU should be asking you, should be providing you immediately with resources. But if you don't feel like they're being offered to you, ask for a social worker. Ask for a bereavement counselor. Ask if they have a bereavement team. Ask if... Um, they have connections to now I lay me down to sleep. I think those are things that you can practically do um, because there is no advice that will prepare you for it, right? Mm-hmm. So all I can think of is like practical things that can help get you through. There's a couple of great books uh, that would be really, really helpful for moms who are approaching or have gone through the grieving process of losing an infant. So we'll include those in the show notes, links to those, because they are phenomenal and can and phenomenal. <laughs> Actually... They are phenomenal, and I think they could be really helpful. Yeah. No, I – Martha, thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah. Thank you for sharing the details. Um, I think it's incredibly brave of you to relive it here, to share it with other moms. Um, And um, if you are a mom that has lost, um, you are not alone. Mm -hmm. Like – you have Martha here, like, cheering mm-hmm. you on. I mean, um, I just want to thank you for being vulnerable, for taking the time to, again, relive it. Like, I I just see so much strength in you sitting across from me to be able to tell me about that. And I felt so invited. It felt very sacred just sitting here. I mean, we, I mean, I had tears down my face just because I felt like I was a part of that moment for a minute with you. And so once again, Martha, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for inviting us into that space. Um, we will link those books in the show notes. Um, and you know, maybe we'll come back to this at a later time too, mm-hmm. if there's moms that want more of your, you know, just your healing process. Cause you've been on a journey of, um, seeking out help and mental health help. And I mean, you have yeah. so much wisdom to share just on all of this. And so that's hilarious. She does, <laughs> even with her musical theater degree. <laughs> um, but thank you for sharing your story. Yeah. Um, we'll link those in the show notes. If you are new to our podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe because um, there's going to be some other amazing stories shared, including Martha's second part two, mm-hmm. where she gets to talk about her beautiful little girl, JJ, mm-hmm. as well. And so um, thank you for listening. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you for tuning in. And Martha, thank you again for sharing your story. We're going to hear from you on episode two again. <laughs> um, but have a wonderful rest of your day. And thank you for listening. And Nikki Mama, welcome to the sisterhood. Amen. Amen. <laughs>